This week on Q&A, Irish journalist Katrina Perry, the former Washington correspondent for RTE, Ireland's public service broadcaster, talks about her book, In America, Tales from Trump Country. Katrina Perry, what was the origin of your book, In America? Well, I've been a foreign correspondent here for the last four years for the National Public Broadcaster of Ireland, RTE. And I had seen and witnessed some really amazing things during my time here. And there is a tradition with predecessors that there's always a book out of it because in Ireland where, you know, we have a great affinity to America and to what goes on here. So people always want to hear about what's behind the uh, the correspondent's life experience. Now, I hadn't intended to do that until I was finished my time here. But given what happened in last year's presidential election, uh, there was just such massive interest um, in the Irish-American community here, but also at home in Ireland, in just what had happened, what had gone on. The question I think many Americans were asking themselves as well. I mean, last year was really quite extraordinary, and so has this year been. So I was approached by a publisher to write the kind of sort of behind the scenes, but also just a bit of an explainer type guide as to what was so unique about the 2016 election campaign, what's going on in America right now that led the campaign to be what it was and to kind of help people understand that it's not all black and white here. Politics aren't just red and blue. How many Americans living in the United States have Irish roots? Uh, It's it's estimated somewhere, according to census figures, between 30 and 40 million uh, Irish Americans, so massive number, uh, huge Irish diaspora all around the world, but of course mostly here in the US. I mean, you'd be doing well to find a family in Ireland who doesn't have an aunt, an uncle, a sister, a brother, a cousin, or a great aunt or a great uncle who has moved to this country, set up home, often fallen in love with an American and never come back to Ireland. And of course, historically it was through our great famine and through looking for employment um, when things weren't great on the island of Ireland that they came over here. So there's a huge connection between the two countries and the two peoples. Close to 5 million people in the Republic of Ireland, 26 counties. What's the big difference that you've noticed between living in Ireland, being uh, an Irishman, and the United States? Wow. (laughs) We need a five-hour special for that one, Brian, I think. Um, I mean, they're, they're just too totally different countries. You can't really compare them. I mean, primarily starting from the point of view of scale, Ireland, you know, I'm a very proud Irish person, uh, but it's a small country, very sparsely populated um, and we just don't have the scale that there would be here in the US either in terms of employment opportunities for people or just diversity either. I mean purely in terms of climate in this country you can have one part of the country bathing in sunshine and others buried under feet of snow Uh, we wouldn't have that in Ireland either. Um, You know I suppose the people are probably quite similar in that maybe does come from the fact that so many have Irish heritage in that I found Americans to be extremely welcoming and friendly and uh, open and polite, very well-mannered. And particularly here in Washington, D.C., I mean, I arrived not knowing anyone and I was really wrapped into the community, uh, the Irish community, but also the general American community. So, um, you know, but I mean, gosh, if we were to go into all the differences, (laughs) we'd be here all day. What what about, I mean, for instance, you say in in your book that there are some 44 million immigrants in the United States making it the largest immigrant country in the world. 
What about in Ireland? Would we see a lot of diversity in Ireland? In recent times, yes, um, you'll have heard of the Celtic Tiger. So uh, when we were booming at that point, we had a lot of immigrants coming to Ireland from other countries, from mostly from Africa and Eastern Europe. And many of them have made Ireland their home and stayed. Uh, we went through a recession and during that period, many people would have gone back to uh, where they were from or a third country um, because our employment opportunities just weren't there. We have turned a corner and, and things are improving in Ireland and our economy is back in a healthy position again um, but we would have a much narrower history with immigration we've traditionally been a nation of of emigrants um, and so we're only now sort of seeing the uh, cycling through of that where you have people who are born in Ireland but of parents from somewhere else you know that's a relatively new phenomenon on the scale that it's on at the moment. Can you explain this uh, to Americans that the Prime Minister, or the Taoiseach, as you call him, in Ireland is a gay man, given the nature of the Catholic Church and their attitude, in some cases, toward homosexuals. How did that happen, and what impact has it had? Um, well, firstly, I think that maybe the view that people have of Ireland in America, particularly in some parts of the Irish American community, would be far more conservative than the Ireland that I'm from actually is and we were the first country in the world to approve same-sex marriage by a vote of the people by referendum so that just shows you something um, I think the fact that our Taoiseach is a gay man is irrelevant um, he he was elected through a system within his own party so not kind of by the people as such um, and people would have elect, elected him within that Fine Gael party based on him as an individual and uh, you know what they viewed his good policies to be um, again from within that political party so um, you know I, it made headlines all around the world like including here it was in many of the newspapers and on the television networks that uh, a gay man who's also one of his parents is an immigrant him, himself his father's from India um, but you know I think in a modern Ireland that's kind of irrelevant he, he's just an Irishman who happened to make his way up to the top of his political party so who did you write this book for? So this book was written primarily uh, for, I suppose, an outside of America audience, for an Irish audience or a Western European audience um, who traditionally would probably align maybe with the Democratic Party, many of whom would have been Hillary Clinton supporters and just really uh, struggle to understand how someone like Donald Trump, not a traditional politician, could have really caught the zeitgeist in the way that he did and what was going on in American life and in American politics to, to result in the result that we've seen. Um, but it's also, I think, useful for people in America as well who maybe um, are used to living within certain communities. And, you know, of course, the media here is quite polarised at the moment. So people are in a, a self-confirming media bubble, whereas this sort of sets out maybe a different viewpoint um, that people hadn't seen before. You say in your book that the United States media doesn't operate like it does in Ireland or Europe because of a code of conduct. Tell us the difference. 
Well, so where I work, RTE is the public broadcaster. It's it's part funded by a licence fee, which everyone on the island of Ireland uh, has to pay. If you own a television, you have to pay the TV licence fee. We also get some commercial funding, but that is our, our, our primary income. So that means that you have to be neutral and objective. You can't favour one party or another when it's an election season. Literally, the amount of time that each candidate gets is, is monitored on a stopwatch to make sure that everything is fair. Uh, that no one's biased, no one's uh, taking one agenda or another. And uh, for me, that's been very different to notice here in America, particularly the television networks um, are so to the left or to the right. And whatever anyone from the other side does is almost automatically bad. And whatever anything anyone does from their side is almost automatically good. So we don't have that. We leave it up to the people, to the voters to decide and come to their own conclusion. Um, And so in RTE, that's actually regulated by law. Um, And then we would have the NUJ, the National Union of Journalists, Code of Conduct, a Code of Ethics as well, that you're not, you know, you you can't um, have a partisan opinion on things, particularly in elections. So four years in the United States, and you obviously travel for this book. Where did you go? All over the place. <laughs> I was I was trying to hit all fifty states, uh, but I got to about forty four. And um, this book specifically, though, focuses mostly on the Appalachian region, and then continuing on up into Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, including Texas as well, because obviously the border was such a, a big issue in the campaign. And um, but it mostly focuses on those states that Donald Trump specifically targeted, the swing states who, uh, you know, maybe people thought were going. To to lean democratic and as we know didn't and it's really about meeting the people in those states I mean we're well aware of the sort of core base Donald Trump voter that we see all the time but this is about the more swing voter middle of the road independent voter and what motivated them perhaps after voting democratic for decades to switch and suddenly vote not even for the Republican Party but specifically for Donald Trump as an individual. You write near the end of the book uh, this, meeting some of those voters, realizing that they have justifiable reasons for being attracted to Trump and remaining attracted to him despite actions that others consider intolerable or scandalous is key to understanding the Trump phenomenon a little better. How long did it take you to get to that conclusion? (laughs) Uh, lot, lots of travelling, I think, because, you know, as a journalist, uh, you can't come to any conclusions based on one, two, three, four, five people you meet. You've, you've got to get the evidence over a long period of time. But what struck me really was, um, you know, people view Donald Trump almost as an a la carte candidate. And there were certain things that he said or did that they really didn't like but there were certain things that he said or did that they really loved and they were prepared to ignore other parts of him and what he stood for for that one bit that spoke to them and primarily that was around economic improvement around jobs around just uh, feeling listened to and cared about which I, I thought was very interesting and instructive for other politicians not just here in America but around the world that you know you ignore voters and their needs at your peril and you can't take anything for granted. In the early part of your book, you wrote this. It was the one and only time in my life where I have been in sole possession of all of the facts of a story and can see how it played out across the media from uh, that vantage point. Explain that. 
Well, you are talking about there... That, in the preface. Yeah, that's me referring to uh, my interaction in the Oval Office with President Trump, um, which happened last June when the President was making a call to our new Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, uh, to congratulate him. And uh, anyway, the, the President uh, called me up to the Resolute desk and said a few words, but... Um, Let me interrupt. Let's show the <laughs> videos of those. I mean, it made quite a bit of news in the yeah. country. So let's run this and then you can further explain it. Well, we have a lot of your Irish press watching us They're just now reading the room. And, and where are you from? Go ahead. Come here. Come here. Where are you from? We have all of this beautiful Irish press. Where are you uh, from? I'm from RTE News. The RTE. Taoiseach will know me. It's oh, Katrina Perry here. Taoiseach. Katrina Perry. She has a nice smile on her face. So I bet she treats you well. What do you think? Explain that. <laughs> I've seen that video so many times now. Um, so what I was talking about, about knowing all the facts of the story was I that incident as it happened at the time was, you know, whatever it is, 15, 20 seconds. And I went on about my business as a journalist does. Um, but it was in the next 24 to 48 hours that uh, it just went completely, as they say, viral right around the world. And that was extraordinary um you know i mean the moment itself i described at the time and i still describe it as a bizarre moment it was not in protocol perhaps but we know from this president that he does things his way and he rips up real books he did it throughout the campaign and he, he's done it throughout the presidency and does it his way um so i mean i've been in the oval office plenty of times as other reporters and correspondents have and usually when the president is on a call with a foreign leader like that you know, they're engaged in the call. They're not uh, involving anyone else, particularly a member of the media. So, um, you know, it was a surprise when he sort of called me over, but he's the president of the United States and you're in the Oval Office. So if he says, you know, who are you? Come over here. Uh, you sort of don't really have an option but to do, excuse me, but to do that. So what, what was it like, though? You, I think you say you had over 100 requests for interviews. Oh, pro probably even more. I mean, I, I had... I had requests from, you know, all the major networks and newspapers and news magazines in this country, uh, in Ireland, in the UK, um, in Australia, Japan, Nigeria, all across Europe, um, pretty much any country you can name, which was bizarre. Uh, I mean, that it was interesting for me as a journalist um, to be inside the story like that. And to see how it feels for someone who is inside a story when you have all of these requests for interviews and, you know, people, you're not a very good journalist if people don't have your phone number. So a lot of people have my phone number. So I had to turn my phone off for a while, which, again, as a journalist, is a pretty remarkable thing to do. People were reaching out through Twitter, through Instagram, through Facebook, through any possible way they thought they could get hold of me um, and I at the time just decided I wasn't actually doing any interviews about it because um, I was amazed at how polarised that event became so it was claimed by anti-Trump people as meaning one thing and it was claimed as pro-Trump people as meaning something else and I just thought as a working journalist and as I say, as someone who has to be neutral and objective at all times, anything I would say about that would be taken to feed one narrative or another. And ultimately, I would be the loser in that situation because, 
it's so divided in this country right now that you were going to say something that was going to upset and offend massive amounts of people. So, um, you know, definitely one of the most um, extraordinary periods in my life, though, I have to say, you know, to be sitting in your office and look up at all the TV screens, be it CNN, Fox News, whatever, and they're all playing that video on loop and then have panels of people discussing how I must have felt, what was going through my mind. Um, You know, the laughter on the clip there is actually not me, that's someone else in the room. So, you know, there were, you know, people just said, oh, you know, I shouldn't have been wearing a red dress. Uh, I didn't know how to take a compliment. I should have said thank you. You know, other people then saying, uh, you know, people say the president's mean to the media. He was being nice to this person or he was being sexist and demeaning to this person. So it just, the full range, it seemed to bring out the full range of opinions and emotions in people around the world. How often, when you watch what people were saying was in your mind at the time, did you say, no, that's not true, I wasn't thinking anything like that? Uh, almost all of us, I'd say, uh, you know. I mean, I, I'm a journalist who's been around uh, the president as president and as candidate for a long time, um, and... He, you know, he he makes his own rules. He does his own his own thing. So, um, for something out of the ordinary to happen in the Oval Office, I didn't pass too much heed of it at the time. I was more concerned that my deadline was an hour for, from then. I had to rush to my live point. You know, back in Ireland, the fact that the president um, was on this call to our new Taoiseach was quite big news, what would they be discussing? You know, there's obviously a lot of hot topics between the two countries, like tax reform, immigration, so on. So this was a big, the, happen, the, the mere fact of the phone call was a big deal in Ireland. Uh, so that's really all I was concerned about. And, you know, upon leaving the Oval Office with the other members of the press pack, and with some of the White House aides as well, uh, we, we were kind of like, oh, that, that was that was odd, that was a bit bizarre, <laughs> you know, and off we went. And I actually went to a Nationals baseball game that night with some friends. They were playing the Cubs here in town at Nats Park. And, um, you know, so you're engrossed in the game, you're not looking at your phone, right? And I came out back into a, an area with a good phone signal and that's when whoo, <laughs> my phone had just almost exploded, really. And then I thought, OK, this is, uh, this is a, a bigger deal than I initially anticipated. When did you know that you were going to be called back to Ireland, to RTE, to be an anchor? Um, just about, uh, just about maybe November, end of October, November. Um, yeah, end of October. Um, so we rotate foreign correspondents here to the US. So uh, we do four-year terms. So my, my four years were coming to an end, and you face that question of uh, what am I going to do next? You know. And so I hadn't really considered being an anchor before. I love being out and about in the field. So I just got a a phone call from the boss one day saying, oh, we need you to come home and take over the main evening news in Ireland, which I'll be co-anchoring with another woman. It's the first time there'll be two female anchors um, in Ireland on on an RTE news bulletin. So one hour, Monday to Friday, every evening at 6 p.m., 1 p.m. Eastern. People can tune in online and watch if they want to. Uh, yeah, so that's my, my next step, really. So it'll be very different to what I've been doing here in the U.S. for the last four years. We're recording this at the end of 2017. When is your first day as the anchor, as co-anchor? It will be the 8th of January. 
So I, I'm kind of leaving here and then two days later I start the new job back in Ireland. So no rest for the wicked, as they say. I can in your book um, that you went, that you wrote about 11 states that you went to. I don't know if you can do this or not, but I'd like to go through the list and just get you, we'll come back to any of it, but get you just to give us something that you remember from each of those states, starting with Ohio. Wow, okay. Um, Ohio. Ohio, I remember being beautiful, actually, uh, which is not something you usually hear about Ohio. Um, you know, it's, it was a stunning, stunning uh, vista there, but I do remember being surprised, and this is not unique to Ohio, but to the levels of poverty in some parts of the United States, um, and particularly in, in Ohio, just how drugs have run ravaged through parts of that state. Um, you know, I don't, don't want to do down the whole state because I, I really liked Ohio and uh, had great food there, great chili actually. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think if you don't travel through the United States and as an outsider, if you just go to the big cities on your holidays, you don't see what's really going on in the middle and you don't fully understand the United States and you see small communities um, in in Ohio and, you know, um, heroin, fentanyl have just taken a grip there that's extraordinary, mind-boggling and people there are just crying out for help and when you go into these communities as an outsider, they tell you their stories frequently because you know, they they need help, they need assistance. There was a story on the front of the Washington Post one day about a, a, a county coroner having to bring in a refrigerated shipping container. Such was the number of dead bodies they were going to find over the weekend from drug overdoses. I mean, it's very difficult to square that scenario with the United States being one of the wealthiest countries in the world and yet you have some small communities that you know they're doing everything they can for sure but they just need help. Let me jump all the way from Ohio down to Texas and I know you were down in the McAllen area and you talked to a border agent. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you learn from that? Um, talking to the border agent was very insightful actually um, because you see a different view of things when you talk to those guys who are patrolling the border every day and every night. I mean, there is a humanitarian story there for sure. And we have a similar situation in Europe with refugees coming from Syria and parts of Africa. But the, the humanitarian situation in Texas is heartbreaking. I mean, when people walk with literally the clothes on their back and small children for a month sleeping on the sides of mountains and whatever to seek a better life and they're coming across the border and then you know the conditions they're facing and the all of that that's ahead of them is heartbreaking but then you talk to these border agents who talk about the the criminal element the coyotes as they're called who are smuggling in these people who are smuggling in drugs and guns and interestingly, they said it was a two-way street as well. There are drugs and guns coming out of the U.S. across into Mexico as well. And they feel overwhelmed, you know. And I know that, uh, President Trump has um, upped the numbers of, of funding and, and border guards this year. So things are probably maybe a little better than when I, I was there last year. But um, it's really... It's a scary enough situation down there at times. I mean, we were told not to be near the Rio Grande as dusk was falling. And um, of course, being TV journalists, we had to go and get the good pictures to tell the story we were telling about 
the border crossings and all of that. And we went to this one part of the Rio Grande um, and there were shell casings like on the riverbank. There was one flip-flop sticking in the mud. Where was the other flip-flop? There were barefoot footprints of, of people who'd come through there and obviously some sort of gun battle. And, um, you know, just what, what's going on down there uh, daily, nightly, you know, it, it's it's a situation that does need to be addressed. What did they? What did the agent? What did the agent think of the, of the idea of building a wall? Thought it was absolutely bonkers. <laughs> um, you know, said oh, there's a, obviously already a wall or fence along one third of the border as it is. Um, but the agents that I spoke to said it's not, it wouldn't help at all. And we saw, you know, um, General John Kelly, when he was doing his confirmation hearing last January to be Department of Homeland Security Secretary, as he was initially, saying the same thing, that walls don't do anything because people are so um, determined to either make a better life for themselves or these gangs smuggling in drugs and guns that they will tunnel under them, they'll build over them, they'll find a way somehow. And the border agents were not necessarily in favour of that. They more were in favour of a virtual wall as such. So more funding for guards, uh, more funding for immigration courts, speeding up that process, um, more equipment for them to have to help patrol the border area. Um, But yeah, very few people were in favour of actually building a wall that they thought that that would solve anything. Let's go back all the way up north to your most northern state that you well actually you're in Wisconsin but Massachusetts and that's a famous Irish connected state why were yeah. why did you write about that I wrote about that because people at home were interested in hearing about how Irish Americans had voted because there would be a traditional viewpoint that Irish people and in fact many people in the western part of Europe in particular would align themselves with Democrats you know harking back to the JFK era and so on um, but it, that's actually not true um, of Irish Americans and you learn that very quickly upon living here that you know Irish Americans are voters like any other voters some of them are Democrats some of them are Republicans many of them favoured Donald Trump um, many of them are still quite conservative voters so they would favour the Republican Party in particular and in this instance Donald Trump because of his positions on certain things to do with the family, abortion and so on, uh, smaller government, uh, lower taxes, these kind of things. So that's really why Massachusetts is in there. I mean obviously it wasn't, it, it, it didn't help him in the overall election but it's just by way of understanding how Irish American voters think. But you did talk in that chapter about immigrants and then you quote a man named Lewis Murray. He's a proud Irish American. Who is Lewis Murray? Yeah, Lou Murray is a guy I met uh, actually at the originally at the convention um, and we, we stayed in touch. But he is a guy who's um, heritage is Irish American so he's not actually he wasn't born in Ireland himself but he still has plenty of cousins and family members there in Cork and Kerry that he goes back to visit but um, he was all in for Donald Trump you know on the local organising committee and all of that and he, he really sort of is a case study as such of Irish Americans who really were in favour of this message that Donald Trump was selling but also the wider Republican Party message of smaller government lower taxation more conservative family value view points. During the trial, they were described as homegrown terrorists who had come to hate the United States. Who are you talking about there? That's the Tsarnaev brothers. Yeah, that was um, another story that I reported on during my time here, obviously not connected to the election, but um, the the Boston Marathon bombing. 
um, Boston is one of those cities that you know kind of almost feels like it's part of Ireland I actually studied in Boston University myself for a while back in the day so um, the bombing of, of that marathon was something that really resonated with people there is a quote in, in that on that same chapter where you're talking about President Obama and you say he didn't do anything for the Irish. So he would be, there would be that viewpoint in terms of... Actually, that was Lou's quote. Yeah, that he wasn't did. me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, I apologize. Yeah. No, but, that, but that was his quote. He, he didn't, and did people expect him to do something for the Irish? No, no, I mean, he's the pre- people are the president of America, not of Ireland. But um, I suppose there would be a sense um, among some Irish Americans that um, there would be movements to do with immigration reform. That would be an issue that we would care about. And also in terms of tax reform, many multinational US companies are based in Ireland, creating a lot of jobs there. There are a lot of Irish companies in America as well, employing a lot of people here too. Um, but I think Lou's point there about Obama not doing anything for the Irish w- was to do with the immigration situation. You know, um, there are many, again, there's no way of counting this, but there are estimated to be about 50,000 illegal or undocumented Irish people in the US. So there's always that hope from their parents and family members back in Ireland that there'll be some sort of legislation to help normalise their status. So Lou's point there is, is, is probably getting at that, I think. At the front and the back of your book, you have two pictures, two photographs. Uh, I want to put both of them up on the screen. Here's the first one. Uh, where is that, and why is that in the back of, flap of the book? So <laughs> the pictures that are in the book were actually put in there by the publishing company in terms of the the production design of it. Um, so that one, I mean, that's not meant to be any particular place. It's just symbolic of Trump rallies, and particularly the fact that there are so many women in that image. And as you can see, they're all very excited to, to see the president there. Um, and that was, I suppose, you know, a, 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 one of the major discussion points during the candidacy of Donald Trump were these attitudes that he had forced to have towards women, the Access Hollywood tape, um, all of that kind of thing. So I think they selected that photograph for, for that reason, just to illustrate one of the points in the book, because there is kind of a whole chapter about female voters. What about the one in the beginning of the book, which is uh, a much different kind of a picture? It, yeah, and, and again, um, th- that's one to to illustrate, I suppose, the fact, this point I was making earlier about, you know, that's quite a, quite a bleak photograph, um, but obviously the gigantic poster there of Mr. Trump himself. But again, to, to just highlight the fact that, um, you know, America isn't all these wealthy cities, that there are vast swathes of the country in the middle, in the suburbs, in smaller communities where people just really felt they weren't being listened to, that their economies, their local economies were plummeting and no one was doing anything to help about it. And they turned to him for salvation. As a matter of fact, if you go back to your Ohio stop in your introduction, you talk about Cleveland. And I want to read how you describe driving into Cleveland. You said is a City of many sides, driving in from the airport, you see the literal rust belt, buildings falling down, once fabulous structures crumbling, a theme throughout this part of the country. There's graffiti, there's litter, there are uh, feral cats, 
there are mangy dogs and probably many more vermin that are thankfully not immediately apparent. How often did you see that in the United States? Frequently. Um, okay, well, and let me just stop yeah. and ask you, do you see that in Ireland? Yes, you do. I mean, uh, not uh, not to the extent that I saw it in parts of the U.S., though, no. Um, I mean, it just, it was noteworthy um, how desolate certain parts of the edges of cities are. You wouldn't see that in Ireland um, at all. And, you know, what was insightful for me on that point was one town in Pennsylvania where the mayor was actually telling me in Manesson there, he can't afford to pull down crumbling buildings. So they remain as eyesores because they just simply don't have enough money in the coffers to take care of those buildings. So instead of it just being a level, grassy area, you see these crumbling structures. Um, and, you know, that that is not something that I would have seen elsewhere. Senator Riordan? Is that or just Reardon, the the Irish senator? Oh, Reardon, yeah, Aona oh, Reardon, yeah, oh. is it? Yeah. Oh, Reardon. Yeah. Um, member of the Labour Party. What does that mean? Oh, so we have a multi-party system in Ireland. Um, so we have several political parties. So the Labour Party is one of the parties um, there. So we don't have like Republican Democrat two sides like this. And the vast majority of our parties are mostly centrist, falling slightly left or right. So the Labour Party would be more uh, tying itself into the working man and woman. The reason I ask you, this is back in November of 2016, where he makes a speech, says some very strong things on the Senate floor, and I want you to put this in context. America has just elected a fascist, and the best thing that good people in Ireland can do is to ring him up and ask him if it's okay to still bring the shamrock on St. Patrick's Day. I'm embarrassed by the reaction of the Irish government to what's happened in America. I want to ask you, leader, to ask the Minister for Foreign Affairs into this house and to ask him how we are supposed to deal with this monster who's just been elected president of America, because I don't think any of us in years to come should look back at this period and not say that we did everything in our power to call out for what it is. How reflective is that of what you know the Irish people to think? So I don't live in Ireland and I, ha I haven't lived there for the last four years, so I'm probably not <laughs> the best person to ask in, in that regard. Um, but, you know, there would be split opinion. There would be a lot of people who um, would not be in favour of President Trump. There would be people who are in favour of President Trump as well. Um, uh, Senator Reardon there has been uh, fairly vocal in his uh, dislike, <laughs> let's call it, uh, for President Tr Trump. Um, you know, and others would ha would share that same opinion as they would here in the United States. You know, um, there's a division of opinion here. It would be the same in Ireland. What did you notice when you were out in these states and covering the campaign uh, about other media people who would talk to you about their own feelings? Because there, as you know, there's a different image in this country about the media than there has been uh, in, in years past. What would I take from what other members of the media? In other words, were saying, what were they saying to you privately? Did you know how? Um, I mean, it's. Oh well, if someone says something to me privately, I'm not about to discuss. I don't it mean. In an I don't want their names, but I yeah. mean, what kind of things would they say to you about the? What did they think of Donald Trump 
as you went oh, through the I campaign? Oh, I mean, again, you know, I, I mean, again, it's um, the the range of opinion on President Trump here is extraordinary. You know, there are people who are very fervent supporters of his, and there are people who really don't like him, and there's everything in between. And you know, members of the media are human beings as well, and our voters. I'm not a voter in this country, and so you know, they would have their own private opinions as well. Um, you know, and and it would it would run the range there. Um, where I'm from, as journalists, like you, you just you can't have a, an opinion like that. You can't be a member of a political party and work for RTE. So, um, you know, I mean, but I'm I'm not I I wouldn't be getting into what anyone had told me over coffee or whatever. You know, that's their own opinion. Okay, you went to Wisconsin. Yeah, the che- the cheese, the butter. <laughs> yeah. What did you learn about the butter? Well, I found it extraordinary that uh, seemingly some people in Wisconsin put butter in their tea, which is not something that we would do in Ireland, although we drink a lot of tea and we eat a lot of butter. Um, but yeah, there there was quite a, an odd situation whereby Irish butter was banned in Wisconsin because, you know, it's America's creamery, America's dairyland, so they have very strict regulations there in terms of... Uh, uh, regulating where things are processed and all of that. So if Irish butter had met the rigorous high standards that there are in Ireland and in line with EU regulations, it wasn't allowed in Wisconsin. So there were you'd meet these people who had to travel over the border to Illinois to buy their butter and essentially smuggle it back in the, the boot or the trunk of their car. So, you know, it's good to see Irish products are so popular, but uh, it, it was just another example of how states differ so much in this country and and there's so many regulations to try and get around in each place. Where do you see more regulation, Ireland or here? Uh, Gosh, well, I'm obviously not a regulations expert, but um, I I think it depends on on the sector and and on the industry. You know, when it comes to food products and that kind of thing, we have very different standards there um, in terms of the use of antibiotics and hormones and all of that kind of thing. And food products, um, those regulations would probably be a lot higher in the European Union. Um, But, you know, I think... Yeah, I, I don't think I'm the best placed person to answer that one. Back to the, the Wisconsin, you met a man named Professor Mordecai Lee. Yes. Who is he? Yes, yeah, so uh, he's a, a professor at the university there in Milwaukee and a native Wisconsinite. Um, and I had a very interesting chat with him about the, you know, obviously Donald Trump won Wisconsin. It was one of the three states that arguably gave him the White House, the others being Michigan and Pennsylvania. Um, And what I felt was noteworthy was that Hillary Clinton never campaigned in Wisconsin at all. She didn't go there even once, um, which I thought was interesting choice given that, you know, if you're asking the people of a state to vote for you, you should probably go there at least once. And... um, Mordecai Lee, the professor that you mentioned, he he disagrees with that theory, but um, he was an interesting guy just in terms of charting through how different elections swing in Wisconsin. The people there hadn't hadn't voted for a Republican since the 1980s in a presidential election, and yet they did this time. Can you explain uh, this from what you saw? Uh, And in the Wisconsin chapter, you talk about, first, those farmers view Washington, D.C. as totally disconnected from their lives. 
For them, you actually have to work to make a living, work as in hard physical and manual labor. And second, referring to them as city people and later fancy people, the average wage in D.C. is $25 an hour, and it's uh, a majority black city. Just 44% of the population is white. Here in Wisconsin, the average wage is $17, considerably below. 87% of the population is white. While there may indeed be some fancy people in D.C., most are not. That's you saying that. But it doesn't matter. The disconnect was already there, and draining the swamp made it more real. Yeah, and this was an argument that I heard, uh, not just in Wisconsin, but everywhere I went, that that slogan that President Trump had of drain the swamp really resonated with people. And it's not a tale unique in particular to the United States. I think, you know, in Ireland, people would say, oh, those ones up in Dublin, or, you know, if you take the European Union, those people over in Brussels or whatever, there's, there's that common thing of wherever the legislators are, that they're disconnected with the people that they represent. Um, and that was something that, you know, the president was very effective in that campaign messaging. And it really seemed to strike with people that they, they would see their representatives or their senators, you know, going off on the train or the plane or whatever up to Washington, D.C. in a fancy suit and whatnot. And they just felt whatever they were doing there wasn't helping them, you know, wasn't helping them to get jobs, um, that they weren't in touch with what was happening to their lives. Specifically, you write... That statement reflects another part of Donald Trump's messaging that was borderline genius if cartoonish in content drain the swamp. Yeah. Borderline genius. How often did you see that with him? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, you know, we know he's he's a marketing guru, really, a reality TV star in his own right, etc. And he knows how to use the media and get messages across. I mean, he's done that throughout his entire career. And drain the swamp as three words is incredibly evocative. And it does what it says on the tin. You know, immediately kind of what he's talking about and obviously playing on that notion that DC was built on a swamp um, and by draining it, taking out the horrible people that live there and replacing it with better people and that was something that, you know, whether voters believed him or not or believed that he could fulfil that or not, they were prepared to take a chance on it and that was something that came up time and time again that his messaging was extremely powerful and resonated with people you could go to a Donald Trump rally he might talk for 45 minutes I mean he often spoke for very long periods of time and talking to voters afterwards they wouldn't remember everything that he said but they'd remember those chants those mantras and that struck a chord with them as something they really wanted to hear and something that they wanted to take a chance on that maybe if that comes true things will be better what was your reaction to the actual vote tally on election night uh, so I was working right through the night, as probably we all were, um, particularly back in Ireland, there's a five-hour time difference, so you're broadcasting non-stop. Um, you know, and I mean, we, we have to just stop and say, obviously, Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote by three million people, and Donald Trump won on the Electoral College based on 70-odd thousand voters in three different states. So, um, you know, I remember broadcasting back home at one point, and I was waiting to do my live shot, and I could hear the panel in studio and they were saying uh, oh no you know Hillary Clinton might still have it here or whatever and I was doing the maths going no <laughs> you know I mean he had a, a, a hill to run up and he ran up that hill 
you know, the uh, electoral math was stacked against him. The polls were all trending in one direction. Um, and so there was a challenge there, but he seemed to grab it and, as we know, succeeded. But based on your own coverage and the way you saw the election, were you surprised? No. No, not remotely surprised. I mean, I, I had been saying on air for a couple of weeks before that um, don't discount Donald Trump winning here. It's not a clear-cut clear uh, victory for Clinton. And even the polling, OK, it was all trending in her favour, but actually by the time you got to a few days out from polling day, the margin of error in certain places was 3 and 4% on certain polls, and her victory margin was you know, not much more than that. So therefore, that renders a poll really not reliable. And also, a lot of the sample sizes in the polling in this country is only 1,000 people. In Ireland, much smaller country, it's 1,000 people. So how reliable is a poll of 1,000 people in a country this large? You know, and then you get into all the other subsets of that in terms of is polling being done on landlines? Who has landlines versus mobile cell phones? um, You know, what native language they speak when the pollster calls and all of that. So I think the, the polling industry probably got a bit of a whack last year but just based on the people that I'd spoken to and and, and where I'd been I, I wasn't remotely surprised actually. Let me ask you about being an anchor in Ireland. Uh, one of the more recent uh, figures we were aware of in this country is that when Kitty Kirk was five years CBS anchor she was paid 75 million dollars reportedly. Is that the kind of money that no. they pay in Ireland? No. <laughs> no. No, no. But how do you... Not uh, remotely. I mean, there, there's no, there wouldn't be anyone working in Irish media that's even paid a million. Like, you know, it's no, not comparable at what, all. What, what else is not comparable about being an anchor in Ireland and in the United States? Are you a star in Ireland? Uh, you would be very high profile, yeah. I mean, you're, you're beaming into people's um, homes every evening when they're having their dinner or whatever at 6 p.m. Um, you know, and we're a much smaller country and we have far few fewer TV stations than you would have here. Do so, anchors go out and make speeches for money? Uh, they can do, yeah. I mean, you have to get permission and all of that from your bosses. Do you vote when you're in the Irish media? As a private individual? Yes. Yes, you do, yeah. yeah. And you have you, you vote all the time yourself? Well, so I would, but since I've lived in the U.S., we had a general election and you can't vote from abroad. So I wasn't able to cast a vote for the current uh, Dáil Éireann, Dáil the current parliament that's sitting there um, in that general election. I was out of the country and that's that. <laughs> Where did you grow up in Ireland? I grew up in Dublin, in the capital city, and just on the south side, um, the foothills of the Dublin mountains, um, one of the kind of suburbs just on the edge of the city there. What kind of a family did you come from? Your parents, your other kids in the family? Yeah, so I'm the eldest of three girls, and uh, both parents worked, didn't work in the media or anything like that, so I'm I'm the first one to really break through into that sphere, so um, through a lot of hard graft, as you know yourself, and nothing comes easy in, in this life, but particularly if you want to get into journalism in Ireland, uh, you've got to work very hard and do all your apprenticeships and all of that kind of thing. So um, I always wanted to be a journalist since as far back as I can remember, I was um, writing poetry and novels and uh, did 
little mock radio show in my bedroom and <laughs> all of that kind of stuff um, and then went off to university and did my undergraduate in journalism and then um, after uh, I guess seven or eight years after graduation went back while working full-time to do a master's in international relations part-time as well because I've always been fascinated by world affairs and geopolitics and all of that which is why I wanted uh, to come to Washington as a foreign correspondent because you know if you're into international affairs and how the world works this is really the center point of that. Where'd you go to school in Ireland? I went to school in a, a secondary school called Sanctuary College, which was a Sisters of Mercy all-girls school. Um, in Ireland, again, it's different to here. The you know most people would go to public schools, and mo- it is changing a little. But mostly, they would be same-sex schools, traditionally run by various uh, religious organisations. So, mine was just at the end of my road. Um, but despite that, I was late a lot. <laughs> even though my journey was about three minutes. You know? When did the journalism kick in? Oh, like, uh, I mean, as, as long as, as far back as I can remember, really. Like I said, I was, a, I was a small kid, always writing stories and all of that, and just really fascinated with how the world worked. And if, if something was the rule or the regulation, but why is it like that? And who makes those rules and regulations? And um, what happens in other countries? You know, Ireland very small island nation with an emigrant history so we're very outward looking rather than inward looking we're always looking to what's going on elsewhere and maybe relations in America or Australia or Europe or whatever so I uh, just a ferocious reader as well um, as a as a child and a teenager and just really loved broadcast journalism in particular because of the immediacy of it. Now when I was growing up it wasn't as immediate as it is now, <laughs> the 24 hour news cycle and everything's on your phone you know, uh, that was very much the year of the one broadcast a day or whatever but um, you know I just loved that you get to see so much happen in the world like we get to have a front seat to history as the saying goes and that's an incredible privilege to have as your job. Where did you meet your husband? Um, he's a he's a he's we was a friend of a friend, but um, he's an incredibly private person who doesn't work in the media and uh, doesn't like me talking about him in the media. So you have to keep some things personal in this business, you know. Did he live here with you, or yes. did he live back yeah. in the country? Lived here, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and he's Irish. Yeah. Back to the book. The other states that you went to, uh, like Kentucky. Uh, Virginia, North Carolina. Which one of those do you remember the most and why? Oh, gosh, that's a hard question because and it's like people often ask me, which state do you like the best? And you can't answer that really because they're so different. You know, um, Virginia obviously is not too far from from Washington, D.C. And what always amazes me is you can drive for half an hour and you're in almost a different world, um, which is true of, of all of the United States. I love how diverse everywhere is in terms of, you know, the architecture is different, the food is different, the makeup of the population is different, uh, the accents are different. Um, Kentucky is very like Ireland, so I, I really loved that. The um, beauty? 
yeah, the rolling green hills, you know, like Lexington is twinned with um, a city, well, a, a county, Kildare, which is horse mad as Lexington is, you know, that would be the, the centre of our, our horse industry. Um, lots of Irish people in Lexington as well. North Carolina, again, beautiful uh, for different reasons. Um, I mean, the beaches there are incredible. I was lucky enough to spend a bit of time down around the Outer Banks as well, which is really stunning part of the country um who's jason meister in new york yeah so uh jason is a guy who is a local organizer for the trump campaign locally in in new york state there for the primaries and then for the general as well um and he was uh you know by he would say this himself all in for donald trump uh, very much of that wealthy manhattan background uh working in the real estate industry he and his father would know the trumps for a long time um and he was you know he was really charged with drumming up support for donald trump in manhattan which wasn't an easy thing to do as we know we can see from how he fared in the primaries in the general in Manhattan but um, you know just he was a good example of someone who you know the the wealthier end of this country who were very big supporters of Donald Trump in terms of what he would do to deregulate uh, the financial industry uh, pro-business reducing taxes all of that and you know we've seen some of that coming in already um, with the new tax law what's the American dream <laughs> The American dream. I mean, I, I don't know for Americans, but for non-Americans, uh, and this is what I noticed traveling around, is like there is this insatiable hope and optimism and positivity to do better and that your kids will do better than you did and your grandkids will do better than you did. And when you travel to America, this is the American dream. This is what you hear people describing to you. Um you know, one person I met had had said how, you know, she was the first person in her family to finish high school and she was going to make sure that her son was the first person to finish university and she would do everything she had to do to make sure that he could be a doctor, be a lawyer, be whatever he wanted to be. And I think people are always striving for that and it's not happening right now in the US. I mean, the census statistics show that three out of five people are the same level of income and wealth as they were in 2008. Like that's quite a substantial period of time to not be making slight improvements on your life. Um, and I felt that people I met, particularly those who had been Democratic voters and were now siding with Donald Trump, was they felt they'd been somehow left behind, that they weren't going to retire or die better off than their parents were and they weren't going to be able to give a better life to their children and that kind of goes against that thinking that I think is in the spirit and soul of Americans. What is your reaction when you hear our politicians say or even our public say America is the greatest country in the world? Um, I think you know Many people in their own countries say that. In Ireland, we say it's the greatest country in the world <laughs> as well. You know, and I mean, in many ways, America is, is great. You know, why else do so many people go through so much to come here and make a better life, try and make a better life for themselves? Um, you know, I think, and there have been surveys to back this up in the last few months that maybe that reputation, that viewpoint 
is diminishing now um, by virtue of recent policies here. Uh, things like not going along with pretty much every other country on earth in terms of the Paris Climate Accord, um, you know, policies towards the Middle East perhaps. So, you know, but I think Americans are entitled to say they're the greatest country. <laughs> it's the greatest country in the earth, but, but so can every other nation. So looking back on your experience of the four years and looking back on your work on this book, if when you go home and somebody says to you, describe to me very briefly why the people that voted for Donald Trump voted for him, what would you say? What are the main reasons? I would say there are a couple of reasons. One is he said he would bring back that American dream and, and, and make life better for them um, and that he would change things up in Washington again, the drain, the swamp, improve things there. And also because he kind of, he didn't stand for anything in particular, he, he could stand for anything that you wanted him to stand for. And ultimately a lot of people are single issue voters, but he was listening to them. He said he would fix the economy and bring back jobs. And ultimately that's what everyone wants in life you know they want to be able to provide for themselves and their families as best they can and if you feel beaten down you will take a chance on someone that's offering you something new so um last question to you if you ever had to come back to the united states and live again and had a choice which state would you live in Oh, that's that hard question again. <laughs> uh, I would love to come back to DC again, but again with the job that I have that you can get out of the bubble that is this city and travel around. If I was going to check out of life totally, I mean, the beaches in California are pretty amazing. Um, you know, like I say, Kentucky, also a fabulous place. Uh, really like Texas. <laughs> I, can't, I don't think I could... Um, I have the, I've had the best of both worlds here. I've got to live in a city that lives on politics, which I do, but I've got to travel around every week and visit almost every other state in this country and meet the great people and experience what there is to offer. The name of the book is In America, Tales from Trump Country. Our guest has been Katrina Perry, and we thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qnda.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts. 